You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so thrilled to welcome Iman Haruikia to read from her new book, A Hundred Other Girls, followed by a conversation with editor Gabrielle Korn. Iman is a writer and editor born and raised in New York City. A nationally acclaimed journalist, she covers sex, relationships, identity, and adolescence. You can often find her writing about her personal life on the internet, much to her parents' dismay. She's currently based in New York City as well. Iman, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, really excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me on the pod. No problem. How are you doing, Gabrielle? Good. So excited to talk about this book. I know. Isn't it so exciting? Uh, I'm so excited to hear the conversation between both of you. But before that conversation, Mon, you have a reading for us? Yes, I'm so excited. I'm going to read the first chapter, the beginning of the first chapter of the book. Um, I think it gives like a great intro to... Nora, our protagonist, as well as like the voice and POV. So I hope listeners enjoy it. Ooh, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, then I'll take it from the top, the best place to take it. There's a special place in hell reserved for men who manspread on the subway. Take this one guy, mid-30s, hair slicked back with so much gel, you think he's speeding off to audition for the revival of Grease on Broadway. But given his clean-cut gray suit, leather briefcase and the pace at which he's whispering into his earpiece, he's most likely in finance. My guess, investment banking or trading. I roll my eyes as he allows his right knee to meander a few inches wider, effectively taking up three whole subway seats. This is what I do when I'm anxious. I people watch. As a native New Yorker, studying different human species in the wild fills me with an odd sense of inner peace. It's like camping in the desert and staring up at the stars. It reminds me that the world is so much bigger than me and my anxiety. I suddenly notice an elderly woman without a seat clinging to one of the ceiling handlebars. Since Goldman Balzacs is too distracted to give up an inch of space that the bench he and his junk have claimed as private territory, I offer her mine. She graciously accepts and I smile at her. Honey, you should really fix that gap between your teeth, she tells me, her voice dripping with a thick Staten Island drawl. I stop smiling. New Yorkers are fucking crazy, myself included. Ladies and gentlemen, we are being held momentarily by the train's dispatcher. This is a Brooklyn Bridge-bound six local train. The next stop is Wall Street. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. I check my phone. It's 1.42, which means I only have 18 more minutes to get to South Street Seaport. I was planning on arriving 10 minutes early, but that's clearly no longer in the cards. Why do I even try to be on time when the universe so clearly has a vendetta against me? I flip open my camera and check out my reflection. My long black curly hair has gone totally frizzy due to the July heat, so I pat it down using a little bit of saliva, my thumb, and my forefinger. I straighten my nameplate necklace, which says Nora, written in Farsi. Nora means light, as in if I don't get my ass off the six train in the next eight minutes, I'll never see the light of day again. I catch banker dude looking at me, looking at myself. At first I think maybe he knows me from the internet. 
My blog in New York City has around 22,000 followers. Substantial, considering it's mostly an internet black hole where I post incessant rants about the current state of our country alongside pictures of my riskier outfits. My sister, Layla, is always telling me I need to step up my aesthetic to look like I care less about how many followers I have. She's a publicist, so she probably knows what she's talking about. I usually just tell her to fuck off. All of a sudden, I see a bright flash and realize that Banker Douche was actually taking a picture of me fixing myself in the mirror. Great. That's all I need to become a viral meme. I'm about to go tell him where he can stick his phone when the train suddenly jolts and resumes moving. So I decide to stay put and review my interview talking points instead. When Layla first told me that her coworker had gotten a tip that the assistant to Loretta James, editor-in-chief of Vinyl Magazine, had quit without giving notice, my entire body went numb. I've been reading vinyl ever since getting an allowance as a kid. When a new issue came out each month, I'd use my entire $10 allotment on a copy of vinyl, an Oreo Hershey's bar, and a Diet Coke from the corner candy store. I even collected them, convinced that one day they'd be worth a fortune. My mother, unfortunately, hadn't seen it that way. She called it hoarding and threw out nearly every issue when I left home for NYU. As my good luck charm today, I brought along the only copy she'd saved. For as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a writer. And yeah, I know, there's no money in writing, magazines are dying, newspapers are selling out, and journalists are more interested in becoming celebrities than prolific authors. But that's not me. I still maintain that magazines like Vinyl saved my life. You see, my parents were immigrants, and while my mom and dad were able to give me a lot of things, advice was not one of their strong suits. They're from a different culture and a different time, and they're very good at talking at me, but not necessarily to me. I was essentially raised by three pillars, Layla, young adult novels, and magazines. I always had my head in between pages, reading back lines until I had them memorized. Vinyl became like an older friend. It taught me how to properly insert a tampon, select which political philosophy to subscribe to, and differentiate between an orgasm and an organism. Reading showed me the way during a particularly difficult time when I felt stuck between worlds, girlhood and womanhood, Iran and America. I've always vowed to one day become a writer myself and devote my life to my readers because, well, I was the reader. Actually, I am the reader. That's why I started New York City in the first place. You have to apply, Layla said. You can finally put that English degree of yours to good use. Can you imagine never having to explain what an Oxford comma is to another really brat ever again? No, actually, I can't. Ever since graduating in May, I've been tutoring Manhattan private school kids, which actually means writing their essays for them while they bitch to me about their friends with fake IDs who go clubbing on Wednesday nights. She like buys a table just so she can sit there and film herself getting bottle service and put it on her story. Eliza, one of my 15 year old pupils once complained to me, it's honestly lame, like we get it. Your dad's a prince in Saudi Arabia or whatever. Oh my God, oops, her hand flew over her mouth. Isn't that where you're from? I explained to her that while my family is from Iran, I was actually born in New York Hospital, several blocks away from where she lives. Oh, sick, she said, relieved. So you get it then. Put plainly, the job sucks, but as long as the kids get A's, I get paid. Plus, it's left a lot of time to write freelance pitches. Not that those have gotten me anywhere. No one ever responds to me, save for that vice editor who wrote back once to ask if I'd ever been published anywhere other than my online diary. I cringe, remembering how angry that email had made me. My hands begin to shake just as my chest tightens. 
why did I ever think I could apply for a position like this? Final is the magazine responsible for publishing last month's deep dive into the history of sexual misconduct during New York Fashion Week, for Christ's sakes. Last week, I wrote a blog post comparing my postgrad life to a charcuterie board. Why the fuck did I convince my grossly underqualified ass to apply? I snap out of my spiral just in time to realize we're pulling into the Fulton Street Station. I run out of the train and up the subway steps, passing passerby. I'm carefully, sorry, I'm careful not to let the heels of my tiny kitten mules get stuck in the crevices of the cobblestone streets. My body is clad in a slinky vintage slip, which was originally white with some sketchy discoloration when I found it. But after I tie-dyed it in Layla's bathroom, it was reborn. The dress feels like me, undiscovered potential. The right person just has to see it. I turn the corner on Varick Street and arrive at the Shifter and Pierce Publishing Tower. It's one of those buildings I've probably passed a hundred times over the course of my life, but have never really seen before. It's made of old brick, probably about 50 floors with large windows and beautiful veranda detailing, the kind that makes every room look like a Renaissance painting. It's dripping with old New York charm. And when I close my eyes, I can hear the clapping of typewriters and the barking of newsroom reporters in the 1920s. I can smell the smoke from their cigarettes wafting out onto the sidewalk. This is what I love about the city. Every neighborhood has its own personality and history. Every block has its own language and people. And every building has its own story. One that's constantly being edited by pedestrians who dare to enter. And when they exit for the very last time, they leave the ink wet for the next unsuspecting tenant. Now it's my turn to scribble something in its margins. Woo! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I went over, but. First of all, Iman, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. How's everything going and how does it feel? Thank you so much. Um, first of all, can I just say I'm so excited that you're the one talking to me today. Uh, for anyone listening at home, like I love Gabrielle as a person, editor and a writer and her um, debut, which was a memoir. It was so incredible. If you haven't read it, you guys have to check it out. Um, okay. Thank you. I'll stop deflecting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty crazy month. Um, I know that this is going to be coming out right as the book publishes, but it's been really surreal watching this come to life. Uh, the book has been 30 years in the making for me. So being able to finally talk about it with people, I mean, it feels like a conversation I've had over and over in my head, but now it's, <laughs> now it's being played out in real time. It's, it's pretty crazy. When did you know that this was the book you were going to write? That's a great question. Um, I think that in some ways that this was a story that had really been percolating in the back of my head for a really long time. I definitely pulled inspiration from every job I've ever worked in media, from the entry level positions to the um, more higher up top editor positions. But I didn't really know that I was ready to start putting pen to paper until I felt particularly trapped in my job, um, sort of unsure of where I wanted to take my career. And all I knew is that I really wanted to have a project that felt like it was mine, um, to have a story that I could look forward to working on every week when I got home from work. Um, and 
I think in many ways, this was the first story I had to tell to get off my chest before I could write anything else because it's so personal. And because as I said, it's just sort of been swimming around in the back of my head ever since I took my first position as an assistant. The main character is obviously not you, but I do think that you have a lot in common with her. So where does where do you end and she begins? I like to joke that this is autofiction summer because I feel like I've read a <laughs> lot of autofiction <laughs> in the last few months. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that Nora is not me. Um, actually, no character in the book is directly inspired by anyone that I've met or worked with in the industry. I definitely fictionalized everything. And I think that it was important for me to do so uh, because I wanted to take liberties with the storytelling and really dramatize some of the stranger stranger than fiction events that I watch play out in the workplace. But I do think that um, it was really important for me to have a main character who was a Middle Eastern American um, because so often I have seen I guess not even I've seen Middle Eastern American plot points because there's so little representation for Middle Eastern American characters in popular media, uh, whether that's literature, uh, TV, or movies. Um, I often challenge people to tell me their favorite Middle Eastern actress, and they can't because there are so few parts for Middle Eastern actresses that there are very few household names. Um, But I really wanted to write um, a main character who was a woman of color um, and a Middle Eastern woman, specifically like myself, who was messy and um, sort of going through it and unpredictable and unreliable, but also um, passionate and, you know, a little bit starry eyed because so often I do see women of color and specifically Middle Eastern women in roles where their religion or their race are very uh, closely tied to their character outline or their their arc, their story arc. And um, I wanted to sort of break from that mold and uh, I guess to interrogate the difference between representation and tokenization uh, through my writing at the same time that Nora, my main character, is navigating through the difference between representation and tokenization in the workplace. I think you did that really, really well. And um, it's so funny that you <laughs> went to... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just take a compliment. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm terrible at that. Luckily, you're not here, so I can avoid your, your eyes. <laughs> Beauty of the screen. Um, so... One thing you just mentioned um, is that no one in the book is actually based on anyone. And that's so funny that you said that because when I started reading it, I think I texted you and I was like, it's vinyl nylon. And I got to the part where there's a lesbian editor in chief. And I didn't text you this because I was like, don't be a narcissist. But I was like, is it me? And, (laughs) And then I realized that like, you must have everybody texting you that. Yeah, I mean, you did text me about nylon and vinyl. And I mean, there's, again, like, there's no person, character, 
like workplace that's entirely one person character workplace. I want to make that very clear. But there are Easter eggs in this book for anyone that's been through it in the industry. And, you know, the type, the name of, of vinyl, for example, is a cheeky nod. Um, but I wouldn't say that vinyl is a magazine that is directly tied to nylon in any way. I actually never worked for nylon. Um, although I did work for a company that acquired nylon and knew people that worked there. Again, very tangentially, I witnessed a lot of things and experienced a lot of different things firsthand that all came together to create this like amalgam, like drama workplace horror story comedy um <laughs> because again like I I was so taken aback by how insane life was writing itself um for the entire time that I've been in the industry that said yes like I got so many texts from people being like wait is this so and so or I remember this and I, I'd have to correct them and be like, you couldn't remember it. <laughs> I invented it in my head unless, you know, you've somehow tapped in. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's how you, <laughs> you did a good job because it's like, everything feels like something that could have happened to the point where it's like, do I remember this or does it just fit in so well with like the actual universe? Um, um, hey, I will yeah. say though that my sister read the first five pages and she was like, oh, you wrote this book about me. And <laughs> And has read it and thought it was about me. So um, she actually put the book down, didn't pick it up for three years and then read it as a Christmas gift to me. Oh my year. God. <laughs> so, when she finally read it. She was like, yeah, you're right. I actually don't think I'm Nora. I'm way less annoying. That's <laughs> 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 on the nose. Thanks, Av. Um, <laughs> Perfect sister comment. Yeah, no, family is... Uh, it, the one thing that I will say is um, my sister Ava, shout out Ava, has made sister relationships like Nora and Layla's very easy to write because um, she is, you know, I'm obsessed with her a totally normal amount. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of like the truly sweet parts of the book was this like sister love that um, endures no matter what. Um, so I, one thing I really loved also was the way you wrote about just like the print digital divide in general. I think that that is just like rife for dramatic writing and it was really fun to read about. And what I loved was that neither camp really comes out looking like the good guys, like everybody is behaving poorly. And I was wondering, did writing about that change your point of view about the situation? Like, did it give you more empathy or like, did you go in to the writing process understanding that everybody is flawed? Um, first of all, I just want to say, I'm so sorry. I think my neighbors are vacuuming really loudly. Can't you can't hear it? Okay. Amazing. Um, so I love that you said that because it was very important to me to show that everyone, every actor, every team um, was incredibly morally gray and was operating in a zone that wasn't necessarily black or white. And I wanted the reader alongside Nora to constantly be recalculating who the good guys and who the bad guys were, and maybe even be taken aback or surprised at certain points by who they were rooting for. Um, I've gotten messages from several people that 
you know, they ended up rooting for, you know, the person that they least expected to by the end of the book. And the truth is, I went in with the understanding that both teams and both people in those positions, digital media editors and, you know, old school print editors are in impossible situations because they're in a situation. Um, there's a there's a system, there's this systemic issue with the industry um, that ultimately keeps them from being able to prioritize the reader. And I think that everyone working in media, and I think that everyone in this book um, goes through phases in which they're sort of unaware of the fact that they are being negatively impacted by this system, playing along with the system, actively fighting against the system. But ultimately, Nora has to decide for herself if she can operate within these means or if she has to you know, exit altogether in order for her to make a difference outside of the system. So I went in with that philosophy because again, I was feeling sort of, as I mentioned, um, trapped myself or frustrated with um, this idea that no matter what I did, no matter what I wrote, no matter how many, you know, hits I got in a story, like I was working for a conglomerate um, and I, you know, was like, you know, lining the pockets of like men I would never meet and people who would never know my name. And I, I was just feeling really, I guess, frustrated with the fact that um, the values of the industry weren't really aligning with like the objectives of the work. So I think that in the end of the day, like people always ask me like, who's the villain in the story? Is it Loretta? Is it members of the digital team? Is it Nora? Because she so often is going against her own, you know, best interests. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but there are a few other people who, um, perhaps act as anti-heroes in the book. And I always say the same thing. I don't, I don't think the real villain here is, is the system, is the industry in general, because it's setting up all these people who start as good faith actors to fail. Yeah, totally. And I think another thing that felt really real about it that I'm so glad you included was the toll that it takes on her mental health. And um, you weave her struggles with anxiety throughout the whole book. And it's like, it's kind of like, of course, it evolves to the point that it does. Um, but it was, I thought it was a really interesting choice to include that. Um, can you talk about why that was important to you? Yes. Well, I think that this is, that was probably one of the most personal parts of the book for me. Um, in my first job in media, I experienced like a pretty rapid um, decline in my own mental and physical health um, because I was working crazy hours and um, no longer taking care, taking care of myself to the best of my abilities. And um, it took a really long time for me to sort of reconcile the fact that there were direct parallels between, you know, my quality of life while working um, and my work-life balance with, you know, my, you know, the experiencing my very first panic attacks. And, um, you know, I started developing like really intense digestive issues and, you know, different 
forms of like eczema and I had an issue with my, you know, um, my reproductive health and all of these things just sort of like building up until something happened where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And it was almost like my body was speaking out loud for me um, and confronting me by my mind kept pushing back. And I wanted Nora to have a similar um, experience so that others, especially young people who are um, in entry level positions across different industries who are, um, you know, working 24 seven to the point of burnout, um, making very little money and being told that they're replaceable. Um, so those people who are perhaps ignoring the signs against their better judgment can read Nora's, um, read about Nora's incident and hopefully um, allow that to be their own like sort of intervention period before their body uh, does the same to them. So that was my hope there. And um, I mean, I think that there's been a lot of really incredible anxiety rep written in the last couple of years, especially. Um, and I'm really proud to be writing during a period in which discussing mental health and mental illness is normalized and celebrated. And there was a place in the industry and in fiction for it. Yeah, I think it'll really mean a lot to a lot of people. And I'm so sorry that that was your experience. No, it's okay. I've actually never, um, no one's ever asked me actually about this. This is the first, I've done a lot of like conversations about the book um, in the last month. And you're the first person to ask me about the mental health rep, which I think- Oh, great. I wonder if this is, because we both worked in media. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I talking about Easter eggs for people um, that um, I, and texts that I've been getting. Um, I've never talked about this, although people in my life know it, but I actually had a very similar situation to Nora in the book, um, except I didn't happen to me in a beauty closet. It happened to me in a, in the bathrooms of the building I was working in. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil anything for the book, but, um, there, all I'll say is there were EMTs called and I did get rushed out of the building, but I was, if I remember correctly, the, um, third person to have that happen to in six months, um, working for that specific brand. So I don't even know, um, if other brands had experienced similar incidents in that six month period, oh but we had, like, we had like a 30 person team and this happened to three people in a six month period. So did you continue working there? Yes. Um, I did continue working there. Um, but it was the first time that I, um, realized that maybe there was an issue past just, you know, like me not being tough enough to handle, um, demanding work hours. <laughs> right. Which I'm sure is what was said to you. Yeah. I, I think that, um, people were concerned definitely, but ultimately like when you work in a newsroom or you work for a, you, you work in a situation in which, you have to constantly be plugged in and online. Something that you realize really quickly is um, you're unable to remove yourself from the news cycle and the cultural zeitgeist. So um, news, breaking news and 
quote unquote, life or death situations are happening 24 seven. So I think that incidents like mine are quickly forgotten because in 24 hours, it's time to put out another fire. So. Right. And like, let's be clear, a life and death situation would be like a celebrity hair change that needs to be written about. Right. Yes. Um, I, I'll never forget um, the person who trained me for my first ever job, who's actually a close friend of mine now, um, said to me while she was training me, um, remember that if you make a issue with a return, that it's not the end of the world because we're not curing cancer. And I, I have to tell you so many times throughout <laughs> the rest of my career, I'll remind myself that no one is dying and we're not curing cancer because we'll act as if like Kylie Jenner's baby name change is the equivalent of like, I don't know, the, an invasion of a foreign country. Um, and it, it got to a point where when, when you're in the system for so long, you forget like what's reality and what's just, you're trapped in this bubble where everyone's behaving almost like with a cult-like mentality. Shout out Amanda Montel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. And even, even the words like in the system, like it sounds like you're talking about prison. <laughs> I am so sorry, guys. Like I really um, don't mean to, I really, really don't mean to, um, you know, conflate my experience no, working in the media industry <laughs> with the prison industrial complex or compare it to illness or, you know, current or world affairs. Um, obviously I'm, you know, being overly dramatic, um, but I'm just trying to get at the core, one of the core points of the book, which is when you're in a like-minded group of people and everyone's behaving a certain way and you want so badly to prove yourself and to make a difference, um, you'll suddenly feel yourself slowly starting to conform and maybe even become a little bit brainwashed by um, the process. So I think that that definitely happens to Nora in this book um, and she has to navigate um, when she can sort of discern what, what she should actually do and what's good for her from um, what you know feels right in the moment. And I think that that is a choice and a decision that I had to make for myself many times. And I think a lot of one people in media have had to make for themselves, but also just entry-level employees across industries have to make for themselves. Totally. And um, one thing I thought you captured well was that like, this is a moment in time where women's media is not just doing like traditional women's MAG coverage. Like there's a lot of really interesting work around identity being done and politics and um, stuff that feels um, like it has more weight to it than I think it did maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and so I love that she is part of that. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are in now this like post row moment after spending a lot of time at women's magazines who were doing a lot of interesting coverage around abortion do you feel like change can still happen because of editorial content or like how are you thinking about it now this is definitely something I go back and forth on a lot and I definitely think that there are I'm, I'm not going to say publications but writers specifically who are doing incredible work when it comes to discussing um 
I mean, we can use abortion as an example, um, discussing abortion, um, but also just writing about identity in a way that's nuanced and isn't in any way um, exploitative. Uh, I do think that there's always gonna be an issue when you have to reconcile the values of a company with the values of the content that it publishes. And um, I think that that's a decision that every reader and writer has to make for themselves, you know, whether the value of the output, um, you know, whether it, um, whether it's more valuable than I, I'm, I'm not putting this the right way. I, I guess I just mean to say, um, if a story can have a real impact, does it matter then that the um, company profiting from it are funding, you know, companies that are doing the opposite or have the opposite values? Um, and uh, does it matter that perhaps the publication published a story with the opposite, um, the opposite takeaway, like a week before, for example? Um, and for me, I think that um, I still believe in the value of storytelling. Um, I think that uh, once we can figure out how to properly fund um, media and properly compensate writers and pay them directly for their work, I think that this will become a lot less muddied. Um, I don't have an answer for it yet. I can't like I can't fix the, the broken media system. Um, although I think everyone that enters it tries to to a certain extent, um, but. I, I do think that there's a way to impact people editorially, um, and that's through vulnerable storytelling that resonates on a deeper level with people um, and moves them enough that it leads them to have conversations with people who might disagree with them. And then those conversations, I think, can lead people to enact real tangible change. And I've always believed that. Um, I just think that perhaps the format through which that storytelling takes place needs to change and will change in the next in the next decade. Um, and I also just think that publications need to get better at practicing what they, they preach. Like I think that publications are made of really, really wonderful, smart, dedicated people who are talented and really do want to um, like create change and to reach people. But I think that oftentimes they're put in compromising positions where they have to sacrifice their morals or uh, really question their morals. So I guess if anyone working for um, a publication in a position of power is listening to this, my, my biggest piece of advice that's always like the smallest thing you can do is make sure that if you're hiring people to write about certain issues or you're hiring marginalized writers to write about their experiences with marginalization, you're also hiring them to write about other things. You know, don't put them in positions where they feel like they have to exploit their own experiences, their own trauma, their own identities in order to, you know, get you clicks. Um, you know, trust me, like the writer that would kill a story about abortion probably also cares about The Bachelor or cares about, you know, a million other things that they would be incredible at writing at. Don't put them in a position where they're only good for, for the emotional um, overhaul of writing about the thing that triggers them most. So, yeah.
Plus sorry, one, long answer. No, <laughs> plus one to all of that. That was so great and super important. Um, my last question is what is next for you? What is next for me? Um, that's a great question too. Uh, I have a lot of really exciting projects in the pipeline that I am hope, hoping to be able to talk about in the next couple of months. Um, but I've been writing up a storm and I'm really thrilled that I get to tell more stories now that I've taken the story of a hundred other girls and fleshed it out and gotten it off my chest. I feel like a weight has been lifted. Um, so I'm excited to sort of see what is possible for me and what else I can do now that I feel like I can breathe again. Um, I'm writing a monthly newsletter called Cherry Picked, um, in which I sort of interrogate growing up at any age. And I really enjoy being able to return to my roots, which are essays, um, and enjoy just getting to write for fun and reach an audience of people who are familiar with my writing style. Um, so that's coming up. But once this book comes out, I'm kind of hoping I can sleep well for a week because <laughs> I definitely have been waking up in the middle of the night and being like, we should send an advanced reader copy to this person or <laughs> have we thought about, <laughs> have we thought about, you know, one, two, and three. So I'm just really, really excited to finally be able to talk to people like you about the book and to connect with the readers and to hopefully think and enjoy books that aren't my own. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. Well, it was so lovely to talk to you. Oh, it was so, so nice to chat with you. Thank you so much for having us, Skylight. No, it was and, great talk. It was great hearing both of you talk. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, of yeah, to our listeners. Um, listeners, you can go buy 100 Other Girls right now. That's your local bookstore if you're in LA listening. Skylight Books, you can go to. Go to Skylight, grab yourself a copy and, you know, just have a great time. Um, Iman and Gabrielle, is there anything you would like to say to our listeners and, you know, just fans of independent bookstores? Um, I'll say that if you do go to Skylight and get the book, can you please send me a photo because I'm not based <laughs> in LA and I'll never be able to see it. Um, no, uh, but in all honesty, I'm just really, really excited um, to get this book into the hands of readers. Um, if you do end up reading and want to chat further about anything we touched on, you can find me at Iman Kia on Instagram and on TikTok. And I am just really grateful um, DM me photos of the book. I'm actually not kidding. I will send them every single one to my mom. She has a folder on her phone. That's just pictures that people have sent of the books. So do it to make my mom happy. <laughs> and that's what, what a better, what like better reason do you need? Like, I can't think of one. Um, Gabrielle, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, um, totally buy this book, buy it from Skylight. Um, and I will say this is my second event with Skylight since moving to LA. And um, I just think that you guys are such a great bookstore and resource. Um, I felt so welcome when I did an in-person event and um, buy your books from independent bookstores. 
what a, I can say better myself. Listeners, this was Oman, Hari, Kia, and Gabrielle Korn. In conversation about 100 other girls, now on sale. I did say that already, but I'll say it one more time because it needs to be said. Um, thank you all for listening. If you're new, please come back. We have some great episodes on the way. And yeah, listen to our uh, other episodes that we've had already. If, you, if you're returning, thank you for returning. We love you and we appreciate all of you out there. You all have a great day and take care of yourselves. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.